Good morning. We are starting uh, a new study, uh, a portion uh, of a book of Matthew, and we're looking at specifically at um, the sermon that was given on the mount. Many think a a flattened spot uh, on a a mountain because it's also uh, in one of the other parallel gospels called the great the the known as the sermon on the plain um, and and has a lot of uh, much of the same content and message that that Jesus gives I'm going to warn you ahead of time we're sp- we're going to spend seven uh, seven different weeks um, looking at different points throughout this Jesus' teaching. Um, and at first it's said, oh, we'll, we'll study the Sermon on the Mount. That's Jesus' words. And, and I many times just kind of have this a happiness for sure. But then... When you dig into the depth of what Jesus is teaching, this is challenging. This is life-changing and meant to be, right? So a happiness with a, a, a dose of warning. This can be very challenging to us in a positive way as a body, as a body of believers, as individual believers, and, but as a church. Um, and so there's an introductory step. We're just going to look at the first couple, two, three verses um, and just kind of talk about some background. But after this introductory state, statement that, that sets the stage, which we'll get to, Jesus delivers in verses 2 through 12, he delivers what's become known as the, the Beatitudes. And these, these well-known sayings describe the character that the Holy Spirit produces in all of those who follow Jesus and the blessings that will finally come, will come in, to his people. Verses 13 through 16 define the followers of Christ, the the church, as a community set apart to bear witness to the light of God's truth and his saving grace to the world. And so we, we come to that understanding that what Jesus is calling and challenging the church. The next major section in Matthew 5, 17, 48 features Jesus' exposition and application of the law of God. He's talking about the law that's been, uh, that's been given. And in these verses, Christ reveals himself as the final goal and fulfillment of the law. Christ is the final goal and fulfillment of the law. And he reveals the depth of Uh, of his law while correcting many misunderstandings of the law that were current in that first century Jewish teaching. After this, in Matthew 6, Jesus covers uh, various topics uh, relating to personal 
personal piety, covering prayer, fasting, hypocrisy. And in this portion of the sermon, Jesus provides one of the most important models for prayer that we find in the Bible, the Lord's Prayer. We've studied that years ago in great depth here at Harvest. Matthew 6, 19 through 34 exhorts us to have a single object of trust, which is the Lord God. It reminds us that we cannot have more than one true master, that we can't both serve uh, both the Lord and serve money. You can, you can insert power. You could insert anything into that, anything that we allow to become a master. You can't serve two masters. He underscores why God alone is worthy of our absolute allegiance, for God takes care of his people perfectly. In Matthew 7, 127, uh, 1 through 27, Jesus addresses several different topics, uh, exhorting us to judge others by the same standard in which we judge ourselves, to pray without ceasing. Uh, it gives us in verse 12 what's come to known as the golden rule. Uh, important warnings about false prophets, instruction on the narrow way to salvation, a warning that we must uh, possess the faith that we Profess, and that's a little foreshadowing of where we land today. Jesus concludes his sermon in 7 24 through 27 by exhorting people to build their lives on his teaching, warning that those who do not will be swept away. Verse 24 Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell and great uh, was the fall of it. In verse 28, And when Jesus finished these things, all of the teachings of, the, of them being gathered together as the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished as what, at what was taught. For he was teaching them as one who had great authority and not as their scribes. What exactly did Jesus say that astonished the crowds? Matthew 5, 1 through 3, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, to miss the point of the Sermon on the Mount, the points, an ultimate point, is to miss the keystone of Jesus' teachings. This message is, to is considered the most important sermon of Jesus' teaching ministry and ultimately the greatest, I believe, the greatest sermon ever preached. It contains the Beatitudes, the model prayer, golden rule. It's three chapters long. 
Matthew chapter 1 gives us the, the genealogy that demonstrates that Jesus has the legal right to, to rule Israel. Chapter 2 shows that the Gentiles, the Magi, accepted his kingship. Chapter 3, John preaches repentance, which was necessary before the Davidic kingdom could be established. In chapter 4, Jesus is demonstrated to be morally worthy to rule by resisting the devil's temptation, and he shows the conditions of the kingdom by several different miracles that are recorded for us. There was truly a fever building in Israel. In chapter 5, Christ then delivers the, the ethic let's say, of the kingdom. Christ wanted to be sure everyone clearly understood his expectations of what kingdom living looked like. See, if Christ is king of our lives, there is a certain behavior that follows. If Christ is the, is the king of our lives, there is a certain behavior that will follow. And that's what he's addressing throughout this sermon, throughout this teaching. Now, while the exact physical square foot of dirt that, that Jesus was standing on is not certainly known, but... For 1,600 plus years, there is an area that has been commemorated most likely to be an area that that sermon was given. It's on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So the backdrop of this message would have been uh, these kind of mountainous area looking out over the water. Matthew 5 tells us he sat, which would have been traditional, uh, as a traditional rabbi would have done when he was about to teach. Uh, and while his message was very unique to his hearers, he made it clear in verse 17 that he wasn't there to abolish the law or the prophets. His purpose in coming was not to do away with the old covenant, nor was it to give a new definition of how to become righteous. He wanted the Jews to understand what God's standards have been all along. And this explains the verse that say, the verses that say, you have heard it, that it was said, but I tell you, and Jesus is not giving anything new here, but it's calling them to a more mature understanding of God's law. So, think of this. You, if you're a parent, if you have raised little ones, um, thinking, telling a child, don't, don't play with the stove. Don't touch the stove. Okay, little toddler... Uh, on up, they can wrap their minds around, don't touch the stove. Now, that makes perfect sense to the adult who's giving the instruction, um, but from the perspective of the child, they, they don't understand. It doesn't make sense. They hear it, they're, they're going to do it. 
uh, they're obeying the law, thou shalt not touch the stove, but out of obedience, but, but not necessarily out of understanding, right? They don't understand the consequences that can come and that it's actually keeping them po- from possible harm. Um, but as the child matures, so does the understanding. And from God's perspective, the law provided for external righteousness, for safety, for uh, necessary for immature or young compliance until that maturity comes and understanding comes. Well, the Jews had never really matured in their understanding of what God wanted from them. They thought external compliance, they thought do this, do that, do this, do that, don't do that, don't do this, with the works of the law were sufficient to please God. The Pharisees taught and, and propagated this external-only compliance. They claimed that, that people could be righteous because of their actions, but this type of preaching completely ignores the purity of the heart, the heart condition, right? Their, their actions could have been right while their mind or while their hearts were corrupt and rotting. Matthew 23, 25 through 28, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and, and self-indulgence. You you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The weekend that London was dying, or the, the, the week that London, my daughter, was diagnosed with leukemia, we rushed um, to Evansville and then ultimately to uh, Peyton Manning Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. And many of you and other friends uh, amazed us with how that vacuum was filled, caring for puppies that were at our house, to straightening up the house, to, to taking Trey, uh, went to Nick and Katie's doll's house for a couple of days while our daughter was uh, working, and then Lauren ultimately was able to come and stay with them and, um, and that type of thing. But while we were away, we got a phone call from my, from my daughter and said, I've got I've to tell you this. Now, remember, this is years back, three, four years ago. Um, and I got a call from my daughter and said, yeah, I've got to tell you what Trey did. He, they used to have milk cups that they would carry around. And actually, there was a season where we even made kefir, so it's kind of like a liquid milk, like a liquid yogurt that you could just drink. So by 
intensive person. It was spoiled to begin with. I mean, Kiefer, let's just call it, you know, sour cream, that type of thing. Well, I guess he had found one of his cups that had rolled underneath the bed and ran in and found it and decided to take a drink of it and immediately knew something's not right and ran in uh, to Lauren and, and told her what he had done. But to him, the outside, it looked like every other cup, right? Just like we would have got out of the cupboard and put the lid on and handed him something to drink. That's what Jesus is, is talking about here. Not saying I have a bad habit of leaving coffee cups different places, and I try and retrace my step. But I there will go a week, and when I'm trying to make coffee and I don't have any of my normal cups that I use, I know it's time to make a lap anywhere that I've been working through the kennel, through the garage, through the this on the wherever I've been because there's most likely a cup. And again, depending upon how long it's been there and the temperature at which it's been, you do not want to know what you can find inside of those. But again, from the outside looking in, we're good to go. But Jesus is now explaining that true righteousness, God's righteousness, righteousness that is evident of God's kingdom would have to go beyond these, surf, the, these superficial externals. God demanded an internal, demands an internal righteousness that would produce then external Righteousness. So our inside, so instead of cleaning our outside and then dealing with the inside, we start with the inside and that love and that righteousness in our heart and love of Christ then will produce external, what we many times talk about, the fruit of the Spirit. Each of the eight Beatitudes opens with the word blessed. It's, I think it's essential that we understand here in the beginning, what this word means, because it bears on everything that will be said throughout our time looking um, at this sermon. And contrary to popular opinion, blessed in this context does not mean happy, even though some translations may have rendered it this way. The, the root word that is in the original text does not translate happy. Um, happy is a feeling, right? It's a subjective state. Jesus is not declaring how people feel. Rather, he's making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. So blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means to be approved, to, to be approved, to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves us. Of course, there's 
no doubt that such blessing will bring feelings of happiness. We will draw comfort, draw happiness, draw joy from knowing that we have approval with him. But we must remember that the root idea of blessed is an awareness, being aware of approval by God. Blessedness is not simply a nice wish from God. It's a, it's a pronouncement of what we actually are. We are approved. As we begin this study of the Beatitudes, we've got to realize that if God's blessing, approval, means more to us than anything else, even the approval of our friends, business acquaintances, colleagues, whatever, then this sermon... These words of Christ are going to penetrate our hearts and maybe speak to us in ways that they've never spoke to you before. And so then the question is, do we really want his approval more than anything else? Not do we want to be happy As proper as that desire is, we long for peace and happiness. But do we truly want God's approval above all else? And if so, then we have to heed every word and look at every word. And in this first encounter, this first beatitude, it gives us the condition of blessings to be poor in spirit. Blessed, approved, are the poor in spirit. Now, let us understand what poverty of spirit is not. It's not the con this conviction that, that no one is of no value whatsoever. It, it, it doesn't mean the abstinence of, of self-worth doesn't require that we believe ourselves to be zeros, right? Because such an attitude can't be scriptural. Christ's death on our behalf teaches us that we are of great value. Neither does poor in spirit mean shyness or, or, or mean lacking in vitality. What then does poor in spirit mean? Well, the history of the word in the Greek gives us some insight. It comes from a, a, a verb root that denotes to cower and cringe like a beggar. And in classical Greek literature came to mean someone who crouches about begging. And in the New Testament, it bears something of this idea because it denotes a poverty, a poverty so deep that the person is fully dependent on the giving of others. Do you get that? So this, this poverty so deep that the person is fully dependent on the giving of others. It can't survive without help from the outside. So, so an excellent, let's say, translation would be this beggarly poor. So now if we take this and we combine that, it's be blessed are the 
beggarly poor, this understanding of what we are in need of in spirit. Blessed are those who are so desperately poor in their spirit, in their spiritual resources, that they realize they realize that they may must have help from outside sources. So poverty of spirit then is this like this acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It's this awareness and admission that we're utterly simple and without the moral virtues uh, adequate to c- commend us to God. It, it, it's this recognition of our personal moral unworthiness, this, this poor in spirit see themselves as spiritual needy. And so then you can, you can kind of filter it down to blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so poverty of spirit is in direct opposition of the proud selfishness and self-sufficiency of today's world. The world has its own ideas of blessedness, right? Blessed is the man who's always right. Blessed is the man who's strong, who rules, who is satisfied with himself. Blessed is the man who's rich. Blessed is the man who's powerful. We must understand and embrace a a poverty of our spirit. But that's the only way we can ever know God's blessing for us. And Jesus began his public ministry. Uh, We see he opens uh, in Luke, he opens to the scroll to Isaiah 61. One and began his opening line, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to who? The poor. And in Isaiah's context, if you look back to that word, in Isaiah's context, the poor were the exiled people of Israel who had not compromised and who looked to God alone to save them and establish his kingdom. And so Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to who? To those that were exiled, to those that had not compromised, to those that looked to God alone to save them and establish his kingdom. These are always the people to who he comes. Luke 1 the incarnate Son of God was born of a woman who sang, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. When Christ was born, Luke 2, the, the angels announced it to humble shepherds, not to the establishment. And when Jesus was presented in the temple to Simeon and Anna and representatives of the poor, 
of Isaiah's prophecy exalted God because of him. These are the people to whom Christ is born and in whom he is born. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now we turn to the statement after it says, for theirs is the kingdom of, have, of heaven. Theirs is emphatic. It means theirs in the sense of theirs alone, uh, barring all others who approach God with a different spirit than that of this beggarliness. A reward of the kingdom is both now and future. It's present because all uh, who have life are in the kingdom now. Remember, Ephesians 2, 6 tells us we're seated with Christ in heavenly places now. We are subjects of Christ now. We are overcomers now. We are a kingdom of priests now. And this means we're kings and queens and that we reign in life and exercise vast authority and power. It means that our poverty of spirit, our weakness is this reservoir of authority and power. Our weakness is the occasion for his power, our inadequacy for his adequacy, our poverty for his riches, our inarticulation for his articulation, our tentativeness to, for his competence. As king and queens, we're free. Pride makes slaves out of those who possess it, not so with poverty of spirit. We are free to be full of God, free to be all that he would have us to be, free to be ourselves that he made us to be. And self-righteousness and moral pride and vain presumption will all damn our souls. Jesus made this crystal clear with the account of the tax gatherer and the Pharisee. I always, because I'm friends with Pete Parson, I always want to say tax preparer. Um, and the Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give him a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Luke 18, 10 to 14. And so as we begin to, to dive in to these teachings uh, of Christ, well, listen again to his words. Blessed, approved of God. Blessed are the beggarly, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, now and forever.
so that's where we land. This question comes over me. Have we experienced or lived true poverty of spirit? Is that your heart's cry? Or are you a church attender without Christ? Because it's very scriptural to understand that there are many that never miss a Sunday, but that are missing Christ. Are you the cup under the bed? <laughs> Clean on the outside, maybe a little dusty, but corroded and spoiled on the inside. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, I just want us to, to meditate on that, to think of that this week, to, to eagerly dig into these scriptures that we have in front of us in the coming weeks ahead, but know they're going to be challenging. I am challenged by this now. And so for us to, to uh, rise to that challenge, to see what God has for us as a body of believers and as a church and as individuals, uh, I'm eager to see what the fruit of that is. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we just, we thank you for your word. God, we just thank you for these gospels that, that, that capture Jesus' teaching. God, we long to worship you. We long to glorify you. We long to fall before you. And we must acknowledge that that we cannot do that. We cannot truly worship you. We cannot truly glorify you. We cannot truly fall at your feet if we are not completely and utterly rid of ourselves. If we are not truly and utterly poor in spirit. So as difficult as that is this morning, God, I ask that I personally just would be rid of anything that hinders that. We acknowledge gifts and talents and, and the 
way that you've made each and every one of us unique. We understand that, but God, we're speaking of our spirit. We want a spirit that cries out for you, that nothing can fill but you. And then when you have filled that, then the outward expression of that is a joy we've never seen before, experienced before, a peace that's never been there before, just a way to minister and be your hands and feet to those around us that we've never experienced. And so, God, we pray that.